Oh, that's been censored. Isn't it terrible the way the censorship works? Oh, it's so bad, you know. I have such, such fantastic lyrics to that song. Benny Coed has a tea, chee, 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 quack. Benny Coed has quack, 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 quack. Yeah, just, yeah, brings the roses to the cheeks just to think about it. And uh, if you would like the uh, special lyrics to Betty Coed, send your name and address. Of course, you have to be over 21. Send your name and address to the absolute raw, unvarnished truth in care of this station. Bring it up there. Hey, do you want to hear about a real total kooky? Huh? <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, you know, like this beginning of the week, you might as well go all the way out. A little kooky here. I mean, uh, we're going to give a salute to the uh, to the most creative. Uh, the most creative criminal of the week. I mean, this is, this is a real jazzy little job here. Charleston, West Virginia, of all places. You wouldn't think that they've got the creative, you know, uh, creative finks out there. Listen to this. Several Charleston women have been clipped, literally bald, by a man who cons them out of their hair. The police said that the man usually offers a home hairstyling that turns into a total clip job. There have been... <laughs> At least six known cases in the last four years. But detectives say that many, many more people probably are involved but will not call police because they're too embarrassed because they're totally bald. If women give him consent to work on a hair, the police say the man cannot be charged with assault. Maybe that's just the way he likes to see people's hair fixed, you know, just clip them all. The police files show that the man frequently tells women in a door-to-door campaign he's opening a new beauty salon. And he offers a lady of the house a sampling of his work. Uh, I'll show you my new job here, I do. And they wind up total bald. Oh, that reminds me. Uh, did I invent this or not? I wanna, I'm asking a rhetorical question. Would you please give me my rhetorical question music, please? Uh, that's enough. That's enough. That's enough rhetoric for tonight. Rhetorical question... Of the week. It's already here. And uh, here it is. Did I invent this? I'm thinking about it now. Just a minute. Oh, no. That couldn't have been anything like that. Was there ever a radio show or some kind of show? Radio show, I guess. In the dim, 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 dim past. Where it opened up with a guy going... Go like this. Is there anybody at home? I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, hope. Was there a show like that? He'd say, "There's nobody home." I hope, I hope. That's what he'd say. Oh, there's nobody home. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. Nobody home, hope, hope. He'd knock like that. There's nobody home. I hope, I hope, I hope. I God, there couldn't have been a show like that. That's terrible. What a terrible idea. Could not have been a show like that. Medical ed is the... Oh, we'd like to... Speaking of a great, uh, a great uh, moments of uh, truth, uh, the guy clipping the chick's hair there is obviously one of them. Uh, I would like to... Uh, have, you ever, have you ever gone in the joke store? You know those joints where they sell these little petrified little doggy you-know-whats that you stick under the coffee table? It looks like... Uh, you know what I mean? 
and uh, you know, sneezing powder and whoopee cushions and all that stuff. <laughs> Have you ever gone into those places? And all right, all right. Now I'm starting. I'm opening up a can of peas here. Well, you know that that stuff is big all over the world. It's not only big. It's not only big here in the United States. It's also big in London and England and places like that. And I have received a note from the Sunday Mirror of uh, it's a the English Sunday Mirror published in London, and uh, it's a you know it's a tabloid type paper, and they have a, a wild story. Have you? Uh, you mean practical jokers are a, are a breed apart? I mean they they uh, uh, anybody who thinks it's great to see another guy's foot on fire. This uh, uh, this guy. <laughs> And uh, I, I want to ask another rhetorical question, if I may, here, please, at this early juncture. Uh, the question is, why the hell do they call practical jokes practical? What's practical about a guy running around hopping up and down with his foot on fire? I just don't know. And uh, that's called the practical joke. You know, the, the, the kind of thing where you get these dribble glasses. You ever seen these dribble glasses? Let me tell you about dribble glasses. I one time ruined a beautiful, brand-new sport coat. I'll tell you, I had just bought it from J.C. Penney. You know, it was a real good one. And I had just got this beautiful new sport coat, and I was invited over to this Fink's house. And it was a Fink, I'll tell you, a Fink of the worst water. And, and I, I <laughs> he says, would you, they said, would you like a Tom Collins or something? I says, yeah, a nice tall drink. And they, so they whipped up a tall drink with pink juice in it. And it was a bad drink, but, you know, pink juice, I was thirsty, and so I picked this thing up, and I just keeps dripping down my pants. So I wipe it off. You know, I'm looking a little embarrassed. I thought, Shepard, are you starting to drool already, you know? I mean, you're too young to drool. So uh, either that or too old to drool, you know? So I, I pick up like that. Well, I kept drinking this drink, and it kept dripping down all over the place. And the next thing I know, it's all over my sport coat with the pink juice, and I ruined my beautiful new bottle of green sport coat from J.C. Penney's with a set of crummy dribble glasses. Dribble glasses. Give me that second cut there, Mac. Yeah. Deep down in the soul of man, there lies a stinker crummy... I get mad even when I think about it now. You know, it's bugged me. Now, actually, the whole show's shot. I'm just going to be rotten all night now. I started out with such a good mood. I think of my sport coat, and I took it down to this, you know, this instant three-hour cleaner joint... And the guy says, sure, I can fix it. And they throw it in the bathroom, and the, the, the lining dissolved right in it. You know, it comes out looking like a fish net or something. And I said, what about you? He said, what would you have on a damn coat? And I said, I don't know. He said, well, it just burnt holes in it. Dribble glass, jeez. All right. All right, I'll play a little kazoo here, please. tonight now. I'm thinking of that coat. I want to hit that guy in the mouth. I think. Well, anyway, why I brought that up, you know, it's a great little story. Am I glad of this? Oh, boy. Every time I go past one of those joke joints, you know, where they sell jokes like, uh, you know, like uh, dribble glasses and uh, false noses, I get mad. You know, I just, you get bugged. See, I'm not the kind of guy that plays practical jokes. I'm the kind of guy that gets them played on. You know, I'm the patsy. Oh, yeah. Listen. <laughs> 
necklace and I had such a night with a whoopee cushion, I don't even want to talk about it. Just don't even, I don't even want to discuss it. Terrible. I mean, you know, what, 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 what is a person going to do? You're, you're totally at that. You know, you're, you're at the mercy of your fellow man. You are. He's going to kick you in the groin. You just turn around. You know, next thing you know, you're, you know, get one of those cigars. Listen, I saw an exploding cigar one night. I, luckily, I wasn't, uh, you know, behind it. But uh, I saw an exploding cigar one night. That was just terrible, Mac. I saw this guy lights up the cigar. I was right there in this was a party one night, and a bunch of us was, you know, sitting around, and the guy says, anybody for a cigar? And, of course, there's three freebies right away. Oh, no, they reach out, you know, grab a handful of cigars. He goes, go ahead, have a couple of them. Go on, go on, you know. And so this guy sits there. Remember him? He's an insurance man, you know. He probably deserved it, but nevertheless, he's, you know, he lights up the cigar, and he's sitting there smoking away, and he's telling this rotten, terrible story. You know, there's certain kinds of people who persist in, in saying, hey, listen, did I hear a great joke? Oh, boy, did I hear a good joke. Oh, well, what a good joke. Now, here's the way the joke goes. Oh, what a good joke. This is. Oh, did I have a good joke. Uh, uh, it was Aki Duttweiler told me. No, it wasn't Aki. It was uh, Clarence Hochstetter. Oh, no, no, no. It was, uh, it was uh, 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 Maury Arkenschlosser. Yeah, Maury. Maury told me the joke now. All right, so already he's killed 15 minutes of conversation. You're all sitting there waiting. All right, who it is? And then he says, okay, yeah, more, you know, probably none of you guys knew Maury Ockenschlosser. He lives in Chesterton, Illinois, you know. You probably never know him. He's dead now, so you wouldn't know him. But the, no, he isn't dead. No, that's right. It, it, was, it was his brother Howie that died. Yeah, uh, no, Aki. Yeah, Aki. No, Howie, Aki. Oh, no, I knew who it was. <laughs> well, silly, of course. Yeah, it was Sammy Schlummerbummer. Yeah, of course. You know Sam. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, Sammy told me this story, see. Um... Um, well, it was about, uh, let's see, I think it was about, uh, oh, it's a really great story. Now, wait a minute, I gotta, I gotta concentrate. Everybody's sitting there bored, and their behind is asleep, you know, and your head is starting to buzz, and, the, you know, this type of guy. And so, here he is, he's starting to tell the story. You all set now? You're gonna get to laugh now. He's starting to tell the story, see? He's going, well, uh, I love this story about this bow-legged uh, dachshund, see? And this bartender over on 3rd Avenue, and he's puffing away at the cigar, and all of a sudden, Oh, Pow! It goes, wow! No, that's the wrong record. Hit the other one. Kapow! Thank you. <laughs> well. Yeah. Suck. Oh, well, that's enough, Mac. Now that's it. Sucko. The cigar goes off. Blew his toupee across the room into the fern plant. Just a terrible one. Busted his glasses. They should, you know, the cigar went all over his face. And, of course, everybody rolled on the floor laughing. It's terrible. I was rolling around. I hit my head on the radiator and all that. And I don't know why they, you know, they, they're not funny, you know. Now, you want to hear, uh, yeah, I do. I certainly do. Uh, this is, uh, yeah, I always have felt that the great retribution. I'm a believer in justice, everybody. And not, not really so much justice, retribution. <laughs> justice isn't quite the same. Uh, as retribution. You know what retribution is, you know? Uh, oh, yeah. Poetic justice is, is, is much, much greater than real justice because justice generally involves paying fines and all that stuff. But the poetic justice is much groovier. Listen to what happened in, the, in London the other day. In fact, it was, uh, it was in Brighton. Uh, you know where Brighton is? Brighton's this little place in England. You know, it's on the seashore. It's like, well, it's kind of like a combination of Atlantic City and Coney Island. And uh, and this is the kind of place where practical jokers abound. Oh, let me tell you, 
there probably there's a, there's, a, there's a bigger percentage of practical klutzes walking up and down the boardwalk. Hi there, Connie. How are you, baby? Now listen to this. I'm going to read this to you. This is direct to the Sunday Mirror reporter from Sunday, uh, the Sunday Mirror, July 13th, 1969. It just happened in, uh, in London. The unsuspecting holiday mikers were right in the line of fire. Handkerchiefs were clapped to noses. They beat a hasty retreat as dozens of noxious stink bombs exploded around them. <laughs> oh, that's, that's not funny. You know, that's terrible. Uh, but the, it, it, I, I, it, <laughs> the thing that makes it groovy, though, listen to this. Dozens of noxious stink bombs exploded around the holiday trippers. These are uh, tourists, the English word for tourists. The trippers had been unsuspectingly caught in a joke shop war at a seaside resort. Now, this is in a joke shop. The attack was launched yesterday on Martin's walk-around gift shop in Regent Road, Great Yarmouth. Uh, the attackers were a band of desperate bartenders who claimed that they were only dishing out what they had already received in plenty. The stink bomb desperados say that they had to face a barrage of stink bombs in their seafront bars every night from practical jokers, trippers. Every night the stink bombs are going off. And the only supplier of stink bombs in this entire community was Martin's walk-around jokey shoppy, right there on the boardwalk. So the gang walked into the store, bought about 15 packages of stink bombs, came back later in mufti, and dropped them into various uh, waste baskets and counters and so forth, and they went off like a fantastic you-know-what, and they left hurriedly. Boom! <laughs> I say, we were, we were just giving the... We were giving the owner a touch of his own medicine. A touch of his own medicine. Without it? Well, we were... We were we, we, we're trying to act like a gentleman. We offered to buy all his current stock of them current damn bombs if we got an undertaking, and they wouldn't sell no more. But the owner, he said no. So we had gave him a case of his own medicine. Well, let them stink bombs go up in his place for a change. <laughs> oh, the great stink bomb war. You know, that that is poetic justice. A guy selling, you know, selling stink bombs to the people who go down on the street. You know, in a way, they're right. After all, you know, you got to blame. After all, what do we do today? What, what's everybody talking about uh, today uh, in the drug world? They're not getting after the guys that, uh, you know, that they are shooting up. They're going after the pushers. Well, I mean, a stink bomb goes off in your nice little uh, wee petite bar, you know, and you're serving uh, nice little wee drinkies, and ladies are sitting around, uh, sipping their pink ladies, and all of a sudden, kapow, off goes that stink bomb. Well, don't get the guy that set it off. Get the pusher. This is what, the guy that's pushing stink bombs. So uh, you should hear how bugged he is. You see, I have a feeling that, that practical jokers are the least able to take a practical joke. I believe this is true. And, and, and I, oh boy, guys that are constantly pulling practical, you set his foot on fire, and you're going to get a bill from a doctor, he's going to sue you. <laughs> I mean, the lawyers are there. The next thing you know, workman's compensation, and all you did was burn up one of his tennis shoes, you know. But, uh, oh, yeah, terrible. Well, you should hear how mad this owner of the stink bomb joint is. 
this store owner, Albert Rice, said, and we quote, it was an unprovoked attack. Unprovoked. There are other places in town where the stink bombs can be bought. I don't know them offhand, but it was an unprovoked attack. I don't want it to happen again, and if the licensed victuallers association approach me in a peaceful manner, and we can talk it over quietly, and I'm prepared to listen. But I am going to the law. I am going to the law for this. No one is going to sell off a stink bomb in my stink bomb place here. How do you like that? Ain't going to set no stink bombs off in you. You know what, he, what his final was? His, I, I think it was a rum trick. A, a rum trick. A lot of our customers went right out of the store when they smell them stink bombs going off. Now, you know, he's selling stink bombs. He should have applauded that. Now, if he'd been smart, you know what he would have done? He would have let off about 15 of those, see? And the people start running out. He should have blown a whistle, got up on the counter and says, Now, oh, look, are you are you in the smell? Of course you're not. Look at how they're running. Why don't you lay up about 15 or 20 LAs and let them go in church next week? Or wherever you have your fun, huh? Have about a rum fun, huh? Let some stink bombs go. Well, see, that's a... That's a <laughs> now, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not, the, I'm not trying to sell you the idea of uh, letting off these things go. But uh, I, I've uh, probably the worst... Uh, the worst, absolute worst practical joke I ever saw happen in my life actually happened with one of these crummy little devices. And uh, you've all seen this type of device. I, I've, uh, I've seen them go off from time to time, but I've never seen anybody get taken in by them. Never. Except for one time. I'm in a... This, was, this happened in the Army. And I'm in, the, I'm in a radar company. Now, if you don't know anything about radar, let's put it this way... Radar is filled with fantastically high-voltage equipment. I mean, if you've ever seen any top radar equipment, man, there are more signs around it. Say, keep away, danger, look out, high voltage. I mean, this is a, you know, this is a murderous piece of equipment. And we were living with this thing for about, oh, you know, the company there at that time. We'd been with this piece of equipment, living with it, sleeping with it, fighting it, dreaming about it, being scared of it. For, oh, I'd say probably at that point, possibly a year and a half. And uh, there was always a rumor that we were going to get this new equipment. Never showed up. There's always a rumor. And this tremendous radar set that we had uh, came in about nine boxcars. It was supposed to be uh, portable. And uh, it actually did. came in about nine boxcars. Tremendous piece of gear. And, of course, you've seen radars. You've driven around this, this uh, enormous antenna that's sticking up these great big huge dish-like affairs. This is a big parabolic reflector, and it was an enormous thing. And from the top of our radar set to the ground, that is when it was actually set up in operation, I would guess was something like, uh, oh, close to uh, 150 feet, 100 feet, something like, oh, a big baby, yeah. And, uh, and down at the base of this thing, it's all revolved. See, this big antenna dish antenna revolved around it. Steady hum. And it's looking all the time, searching with this UHF equipment, searching all the time. Now, it, it had in it, it had an oscillator. Now, for those of you who know anything about radio, a little bit interested in uh, electronics, this is probably going to curl your hair when I tell you this. It had a what they call a ring oscillator in it, which uh, was composed of 16 tremendous magnetons, great tremendous tubes, 16 of them, all in a ring. And they were, they were actually in a ring. And, of course, they were also electrically in a ring. This oscillator had a peak power capability. Now, this is an oscillator, an RF oscillator, 
200,000 watts. Now, if you don't have any way of uh, measuring how much power that is, I will give you uh, an inkling. It was four times the power of the radio station to which you are now listening. Four times. Four times. Not one time, not twice, not three. Four times the power. Okay? Now, of course, this thing, we were so scared of it. <laughs> we were so scared of it that guys used to walk around. I mean, I saw true atheists walk around crossing themselves. They got good luck bells on them. They're, they've got Buddha dolls. I saw, yeah, I saw guys with rabbit's feet. A whole uniform made out of rabbit's feet. Uh, I, I saw, yeah, oh, everybody was so scared of this thing that they could not even walk past this thing without sort of hanging to the ground and hoping that the lightning doesn't come out and strike you. Now, there were all kinds of rumors all the time in our company about what happened in uh, some other radar company. We would hear rumors. They, 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 I, I remember I'd be working on a piece of a gear. You see, I'd be up there with my test crowds and my little oscilloscope and my my uh, signal generator and a square wave generator and another guy's working over there. He's got the key and he's got the square wave generator and he'd take off his cans. He'd say, hey, Shep. I'd say, yeah. Did you hear what happened at 2938 SAW? I'd say, no, what? The overload relays didn't kick out. I said, they didn't? Yeah, you know what happened? No. 42 of them just went up like that. Pow, ionized, nothing left. A hole in the ground, that's all. The only guy that escaped was, of course, the CO. Big Slob was in the officer's club at the time. Blew them all up. I said, the 29th, 34th? Where were they? I don't know, but they ain't anymore. Just a hole in the ground. We go back to work. And these rumors were floating around all the time, see? And the worst piece of equipment we had, the one that scared us most of all, was the power supply. We had a power supply that made the power for this tremendous piece of electrical lethal... Uh, it, was a, it was an electrical atom bomb, is what we had, see? <laughs> and we had this power supply. Now, when we were, when we were, when we were working on it, see... There were, there were over 15,000 safeguards. You had all kinds of switches, overload relays. Every, every time you took off a plate or, or a, a door or opened up a hatchway, everything was cut off, theoretically. It, it, had more, it had more interlocking relays, man. I want to tell you, you wouldn't believe it. But nevertheless, and you had a whole checklist of stuff you'd go down. So you'd, you'd go down all the way through as you're trying to open up this power supply. Now, the power supply was roughly the size. Now, listen carefully because this is the truth. It was roughly the size of the average cross-country trailer that you see on a tractor trailer. That great big box. <laughs> oh, was it a big mother? And, uh, and it had meters all over it. And, of course, it had an enormous variometer. Now, what is a variometer? Well, a variometer is a gigantic rheostat which means that you can vary the voltage. It would be like as if on your house. Well, you know what a dimmer is. You've seen dimmers uh, where you can lower the voltage. Well, that's a form of variometer. And the, it had a big wheel, and the wheel was about the size of a ship's wheel. Tremendous thing, big steel wheel with all kinds of special interlocks. And you could turn this wheel. As you turn it, you could see the voltage going up. And you'd start at zero. 
And uh, there, was a, there was a rule. You see, you had to let this thing heat up for about, oh, half an hour, or at least a half an hour, to, to before you started the, the voltage up. And so in the, when we'd be, we'd be working on this equipment, it's all shut down, and uh, we have to start it up again. That was the scary part. And I'd go out there with Gasser and about six other guys. We've got all the, the TMs, the manuals. And there were, we had little teams within our entire company. See, there were keyer teams. There were power supply teams. There was antenna teams. You didn't know this about radar companies. Everybody's a, little, everybody's a specialist within a specialty. So you're not just a radar man. You're an antenna man, or you're a power supply man, or you're a, you're a keyer man. And so once in a while, we would all, you know, of course, we would take these tests where we would all have to go over the system analysis and work the whole thing. So I remember one day when we were going out there, this was typical. Me and Gasser and Edwards and Zinsmeister and about four other guys are going to fire up the power supply. And this is the way it's done. This, the sun is beating down, and the other guys are waiting over there. They're, they've got all their meters. They're watching the equipment on the other side where the cables are. We approach this power supply. There it sits in the sun, just like some gigantic lethal H-bomb. And Sinsmeister walks over, and he throws the first switch, which was a switch that actuated the filaments. It would start the heating going on the filaments, on the tremendous rectifier tubes in this unbelievable power supply. And it was a, it was a bridge-type rectifier. It had uh, four enormous rectifying tubes and a bridge circuit. If you know anything about that, that's, I'll throw that out for you technical-type guys. And so, so Zinsmeister throws the first switch, and you see the, you see the meter that says uh, filament voltage moves up to the green line. It's right. Well, that thing had a time thing on it. You could not touch anything else for a certain length of time while the tubes were heating up. And so we watch each meter, see, waiting. Waiting for that little blue light to go on that says it is now okay to begin the next set of procedures. It's dead silence. We're waiting. And then you start hearing inside of it, it would do this. You'd hear this relay. It was a time relay. It would be going. It's like somebody at the laboratory where they made this piece of equipment had deliberately built an enormous electrical, mechanical, one-act play. It was dramatic. And it was designed to drive you out of your bird. Standing around. Sweating, wearing our shorts. And then, sure enough, beep, hear this little toot go boop. On comes the blue light. <sighs> okay, let's take a look at this. Okay, then uh, uh, actuate the, I see, actuate heater for selenium rectifiers. Uh -huh. And uh, wait uh, 30 seconds and then press button 2 directly below selenium rectifier heat. And then Actuate relay 16 in series 5. Green button to the left of heater relay, okay? And so now it's my turn to do my bit. I creep up. I'm about to heat the selenium rectifier. I press the button. <coughs> we stand back. Then you hear, the heater goes, Wait 
30 seconds, you count. You, you go double, 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 double. This is the way you count, 30 seconds. See? And now all of a sudden, 30 seconds up, I press the other button, and then you hear... And I see the meter go up, heat. It says heat. And then it comes to the green section. It is now heating. <laughs> the selenium rectifier is heating now. And then Gasser steps forward. His job. Now, what was his job? Well, this thing had water cooling all the way through it, you see. And you had to actuate the system of thermostats in the water cooling system to get the water going. Now, you didn't know all these things. All right, now, did you? Oh, you don't just don't, you know, say, hey, turn it on, Fred. Turn the switch. No, no. It's not quite that simple. Well, you know out here at WOR, when they're going to turn on the transmitter out, it takes them about an hour and a half to get this baby on. They don't just throw it on. Well, about, I would say, an hour later, everything is Jake. We are now prepared to feed power to the radar set itself. Big power supply is now working, and everything is all lit up. The meters are lit up from one end to the other, and all the little pilot lights, green, blue, yellow, red, and we press, we press things like a test, uh, test overload system. You press me to go, ah, meaning everything's working. You know, Oop, ah, ee, ah, pressing the buttons, oh, 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 read meter three, ding, 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 ding. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Well, now we are all set. This baby is capable of delivering, if you're ready for this power, 20,000 volts at 2 amps. Now, you may not know what that is, friend. <laughs> That's a lot, of, a lot of juice, a lot of goo-goo. Well, every day we would do this. Whenever we were working on the equipment, we would do it. We'd go through this whole routine. Very dramatic. One day... It happened. And every day we would do it, there would be a silence hanging around the, the clearing of the jungle where we were working on this equipment. Everybody would sort of walk on tiptoes. They were afraid of something going to happen. And on this particular day, Lieutenant Cherry is out there. See, he's wearing, he's wearing his, uh, his fatigues. And the, he was the only one, of course, he was our, our CO. And Lieutenant Cherry, of course, had this jazzy pair of fatigues. And they were always polished and sharp, beautiful, pressed. Had these bars sewn on them and all that, you know, silver bars. He had a, usually had this big uh, tropical hat with a big silver bar on it. Lieutenant Cherry's standing there watching the crowd. And the, he didn't know anything about radar. All he knew was how to gig us. See, his job, his job was to keep after us, you know, keep fighting us on the you-know-what and make us work. And the, as far as radar, it was total mystery to Cherry. And he wanted to keep it that way. He was a perfect radar officer. He, you know, he, he just knew that the Yardbirds knew how to run it, and his job was to get the Yardbirds to run it, and we could run it. And so it was about 11 o'clock in the morning, the day that it happened. It happened. became a legend, the company, later on. It happened. It is now that the, the equipment has been down since last night. And all night long, guys have had work lights, and they've been working on the equipment. We've been replacing some stuff, and other guys have been working around the antenna system. We've been working on this piece of equipment and, and uh, running test voltages through it. It's very exciting. And now it is, it is 11 o'clock in the morning. Lieutenant Cherry is out. The sun is hot. Oh, boy, was it hot. Just booming down. And uh, he's sitting there in the shade. And I, I was over near the, uh, the antenna testing equipment. I recall it because of what later happened. 
I had a hold of an antenna. I think it was a, a wave meter. And the gasser is way up on the top. He's sitting up way at the top on the azimuth scope. And the, the crowd of uh, guys that were in charge of the power supply were getting ready to heat her up. Zinsmeister had just got this thing all going when somebody hollered out from the top of the radar set, somebody hollered, Okay, it's all checked up here! And I'm down there with the, with the field strength meter, seeing I'm looking at something. I said, it's okay over here. You got these little intercom phones, you know. At the, all checked out here. And somebody is out there with the keyer, and he's looking down at the keyer meters. It's all checked out over here. Everything's cool here. All ready to go. Our usual checkout system. Somebody over at the power supply says, All right, you guys, all set up and down the line. Just get them out of the way now. We're all ready to go. Let's go. Well, Zinsmeister grabbed the hull of the Variac. Now, the way you put the voltage up on this thing was to slowly turn this Variac clockwise. You'd take both hands and you'd turn it up clockwise, advancing it slowly and steadily until, as you read, you could read the voltage. You could read the voltage that this thing was putting out as you slowly turned it up on a big meter directly above the Variac. And so Zinsmeister says, Here I go! I'm turning her up now! 0.5 kilovolts! He's calling out the voltage. That means he's got 500 volts. <laughs> 1 kV! The meter's going up. That means 1,000 volts now on the plate. 1.5 kV! Two! Everything is starting to hum. You could hear everything humming now. The, the key is picking up everything. And I could see, I'm, I'm watching the field strength meter, see? The field strength meter is beginning to slowly show a lot of signal. thing is beginning to pulse, beginning to radiate. And it's low voltage compared to what it usually runs at, which is up around 20,000 volts. We're now at 2,000 volts. And everybody's sitting back, you know, it's, it's, it's going, it's going, it's going. 5 kV? Without any warning. Gasser, sitting up on the asthma scope, hollered, Hey! Hey, I smell smoke! Hey, sir! And then you hear, <laughs> A high-pitched scream that echoed throughout the entire jungle, a tremendous scream. Some kind of a strange whistle was going off, and there was smoke everywhere. And guys are diving into the woods. I remember Zinsmeister grabbing the whole thing. I was, it's just only 5 kV. It's only 5,000. Look out. It's going to go. It's going to go. Boom. Nobody ever really knew they were afraid of this. It was just always there, implied. That little secret moment. Fear, always. That secret thing. Guys, believe me, guys crawled on their knees through 15 miles of swamp. <laughs> trying to get away. Other guys dug straight down in the sand. 
It was the first time I actually saw Lieutenant Cherry actually move. His helmet flew off. Cherry dove. <laughs> Lieutenant, I Lieutenant. And I remember his, his last words as he disappeared into the swamp. I remember Cherry diving, leaving his feet and hollering, The dog thing is going to blow! It's going to blow! Run for your lives! Everybody, go, go! Well, we were scattered, the, the entire company, all of Company K were scattered, like over about 15 acres laying there. I mean, Gasser jumped off the top of that seat, which was about five stories high, and he just flapped his arms and flew. I mean, he didn't even come down. Well, we're laying there in the ground, waiting. I'm, I'm, I remember laying next to a palmetto, the sun beating down, scared to death, waiting to see what would happen. I hear guys breathing all around me. Our equipment is attacking us. Then I hear, I hear Gasser holler. And what does that smell like? That don't smell like insulation. And sure enough, I smelled the smell of the smoke. An absolutely un... absolutely could not be mistaken. It was the smell of firecrackers. You know how firecrackers smell? You can smell them right now if you want to. Uh, they just think what, what they smell. And everybody started to crawl slowly towards the radar set. And Cherry, of course, is hanging back, giving the orders, yelling at us. And then it came out. Somebody had put one of those ignition buzz bombs on our radar set up in the oscillator. You know the kind they put on the ignition? You know, which is... Uh, just married, and the guy goes up, turns his car on, and it goes, wee. Well, let me tell you, friends. Now, I have seen several of these go off in cars, and they have never scared me. But the time that this baby went off in that, in that radar set with 20,000 volts floating around out there, well, I just want to say this. I'm sure that out of the 38 guys, at least 15 guys lost maybe five years of their growth. I mean, four guys in the King, in the King unit went totally white over, you know, their hair just went white. Those are old men now, tonight, just from that very moment. I remember Cherry, Lieutenant Cherry, purple with rage, walking up and down in front of the company, all assembled. All right? All right, look what you've done to my fatigues. Who's the smart guy? You could have had us all killed. No telling what that might have done had that thing got across that oscillator thing up there. And look at these fatigues. These fatigues that my mother sent. Got them for Christmas. Look at them. One knee is completely gone. Ripped on one of them plants. I'm going to find out who blown up that thing. I'm going to find out who put that buzz bomb in that radar set. If I have to bust every last one of you down to nothing. Which was purely academic. There wasn't a stripe in the whole company. Well, that was the beginning of another legend. 
And that was the only true practical joke I ever saw. Because it actually was practical. For one thing, ever since that, that moment, Lieutenant Cherry respected the guys that started up the radar set every day. He'd come around, he'd look at us like as if we were combat frogmen. <laughs> so there was some practical results achieved. In addition to that, because of the fright that Lieutenant Cherry got, he never was around when we were doing our work, which we loved. He'd go out of the officers' club and play Parcheesi. So it was a true practical joke. We got that loud out of our hair at long last. So uh, try thinking deeper, friends. Just try delving a little harder. Probing. Thank you.